Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the Song of Songs. This morning we're going to be reading through and then seeking to learn from, seeking to receive chapter 4 all the way through the first verse of chapter 5. So here Solomon writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is the bridegroom speaking. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountains of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, My love, there is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sunir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. With one jewel of your necklace, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister. My bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. And then she says, I think beginning in verse 16, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And then he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice, I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then everybody said, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. So, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would shoo away all the birds tear out all the thorns, dig up all the rocks, and give us good, tilled soil in our hearts 
and that you would just then plant the word deep with us, deep within us, and that it would bear much fruit. We ask this by the power of your spirit and in the name and for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, uh, here's the thing. As you preach through the Bible, it is really incredible uh, what God thinks good for us to know about. Like, for instance, the most blissful lovemaking imaginable. Even rapturous sex to the glory of God, which is our subject today. And as I prepared for it, I came across a man who who does what he calls Mondays with a man. Uh, Every Monday he meets with men from church for a time of soul care and he'll ask the married men, good question, do you love your wife? And then he'll follow it up by asking, do you like her? Do you like your wife? He's wanting them to have a love that's more than just commitment to commitment. Commitment for commitment's sake. He's wanting something more like commitment to enjoyment. And so he'll then press further into that particular point, having studied the Song of Songs, and he'll ask them this. He'll ask them, do you desire your wife? Do you desire your wife? And then he quotes a a Puritan poet, yes, a Puritan poet, Edward Taylor, who described his desire for his wife as a golden ball of pure fire. (laughs) So that's what he asks now when he sits down with these men, uh, which is what I'm going to ask us now. Brother, does your love for your wife burn like a golden ball of pure fire? That is much of what God is after in your marriage. Can you believe it? (laughs) That's why this word, Song of Songs chapter 4, that's why it's given to exist. And married or not, then we need to hear it. The conversation has been held hostage and abused far too long by our culture, by our society, and our silence as Christ's people and or ignorance of the entire biblical canon is largely to blame for that. Beloved, sexual morality, I want you to hear, purity is not about seeing less. It's about seeing more. More, that is, of God's heart and God's mind as revealed in the Song of Songs, and in this chapter especially. It's about seeing more. And as we head that way, there's an interpretive issue that we need to try to get as clear on as possible, okay? Who is the bridegroom? Maybe after chapters 1, 2, and 3, that's your your question. Who is the bridegroom exactly? Option 1, the historical Solomon. Option 2, an ideal Solomon. Option three, a greater than Solomon with historical Solomon and his like 1,000 wives, princesses, concubines operating as the foil in the poem. And it seems the great majority of folks that I read go either with option two or option three. It is either the ideal Solomon or the greater than Solomon, which leaves us with this. Solomon is not a character in the story at all. Rather, he's just the author of the story. And in either scenario, what he's authoring is a corrective to the sinful love life that he himself lived. So then, the Solomon that we met a week ago in chapter 3 is either the groom that the bride has been fawning over this whole time, this ideal Solomon, and they've just gotten married. They've just gotten married, and this is their wedding night, chapter 4, and then chapters 1 and 2 is all innocent pre-marriage longings, desires. Or the groom is a man who, by his exemplary love for his bride, is greater than Solomon in all of his glory. 
and they've been married recently, and this is yet another rendition of their wedding night. Okay? I'm torn. I I go back and forth, just to be honest with you. Uh, You're welcome to pick a side there, and it will all be well with you in the end. Uh, What I will say, more certainly, is this. Regardless of side, everyone agrees this section, this chapter, is about sex. To the glory of God. It's about that golden ball of pure fire in the marriage bed. So, here we go. First heading, verses 1 to 7. Seeing and savoring, S-A-Y, savoring. I'm weird like that, sorry. Seeing and savoring this promised land, covenant commendation. Uh, This is not a man looking a woman up and down with lust and then proceeding to let her know about it. That, Jesus says, is at least adultery in the heart. It's sin. So no. This is a husband looking his wife up and down, savoring her, and giving a voice of love to it. So this right here in our chapter is not sin at all. Okay, Along with everything else we're going to hear about in this chapter, this is actually righteousness. And the dividing line between what was sin and what is now righteousness The dividing line is, I do. What would be hell-deserving before marriage becomes, in marriage, heavenly. What's not good before becomes very good within. So, for those here who are burning with desire like this, Marriage, what a blessing of God. Okay? What a blessing. And here then are a husband and wife on their way to marital glory. Beginning with his inventory of her body from the crown of her head to just below her chest. He's seeing and savoring what he counts himself most blessed of God to be able to to see. So you see the repetition there. He's like, behold. Behold. <laughs> it's, a, he's, uh, it's a wow moment for him. Okay, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Her visage is divine to him. So nice. What do we say? He had to say it twice. Behold, behold. Right? And then he moves on to some specifics. We need to see that he's not a ravenous beast here. Uh, He is not a hungry, hungry hippo. He is her chief admirer. She and the beauty of her body is to him worth the time it takes to carefully observe and praise. He's taking her all in. He does not want to miss even one thing about her. And in this, dear ones, if you need to hear it, do hear it. We would do well, very well, to burn all the world's porneia. With all of its debased imagery and perverted notions of quote-unquote great sex, and in its place, do ourselves a favor and pick up some divine poetry like the Song of Songs. That lust out there in the world has nothing on this love in the Word of God. This love that out of a clean desire to admire lets that water slowly simmer to its righteous boil. Again, He is interested in every inch of her. Starting with her eyes. They're like doves, he says. They're soft and peaceful. And then there's her hair. 
It's like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes. It's dark, it's flowing, it's moving. And if I might, maybe she, maybe she gives a little smile to that, you know? As I imagine some might. Your hair is like a flock of goats or whatever. So she smiles. And anyway, he sees her teeth. She shows her teeth. And he sees them, and they are white, and they're clean. She's brushed her teeth her whole life, I guess. And, and bonus, guess what? They all bear twins, right? <laughs> she has a complete set of teeth. It's glorious. And then what a frame for them. Verse 3. He says, your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. He has a peculiar fascination with her mouth, which we're going to see still more as we, as we go along. But here, that, that deep red of her lips is almost, almost salvific to him. It's like that scarlet thread. We'll come back to that. But to complete her face, that mouth is now flanked by cheeks the color of opened pomegranates. Again, sort of this uh, deep red, lively, blushed, and tasteful. And then his eyes move down. His eyes move down to her neck. And, uh, you know, what, what better could be said about a, a wife's neck? But that it's like the Tower of David. Rows of stones shielded by a thousand warrior shields. <laughs> she has a really strong neck. And ladies, as we'll continue to see, uh, there's probably something to see here in terms of her guardedness. Recall her wanting to avoid in chapter 1 even the appearance of sexual immorality. Well, here, that avoidance, that holy defiance is viewed as part of her bridal splendor. She's guarded herself for her husband. And he now has her and God's permission to scope even below that neckline. Remember again chapter 1, to secure her bodily insecurities as an exemplary man, maybe as an exemplary husband, he kept his remarks neck up. You remember that? It was face, neck, Okay, so wise husbands understand that there are times and places. Well now, as they set out in making love, you see his eyes are most welcomed to go still further down. Where he likens her breasts to two young gazelles fed on prosperity and to geological formations, hills, and mountains upon which he is determined to spend the night. See that? Once again, as in chapter 2, he uses this phrase, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, that's where he's going to be. And that's where the inventory stops. Only not without his summary in verse 7. He says, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Now just remind us that's what he thinks about his bride as every husband should think about their bride. Okay? We know from her own self-description earlier in the song she considers herself to be fairly typically lovely. Not necessarily outstanding in her physical beauty but just fairly typically lovely. She's told us that she has some physical flaws. It's just that when it comes to her, his lenses are rose-colored. She's his lily among those brambles. His love for her, listen, his love for her relativizes her flaws. Even her flaws are flawless. Even her flaws are like beautiful flowers to Him. They are beauty. So friends, I don't know if you picked up on it, but He cannot commend her body any better than He has. 
Think, think. What in the Old Testament is hidden behind a veil? What might full flocks and succulent fruits and fields full of lilies imply? Where have we heard of a scarlet thread before in the Bible? Where else might we find prominently displayed frankincense and myrrh? And where was that Tower of David again? When I was in college, John Mayer had a, uh, a rather popular song called Her Body is a Wonderland. Okay. Well, this brother concerning his wife does one better, way better. In fact, he says her body is a promised land. It's like the city of God. <laughs> Even the holy of holies behind the veil. Engaging her body like this is like worshipfully entering the presence of the Lord. That's what he's saying. It's eschatological. It's something like At Last by Etta James. You ever heard that? Okay. I was torturing my son this week about the hair flip that sent me to my knees. Some of y'all know about that. You've been here long enough to know about this. Um, <clears throat> talking about my, my, what was at the time my future wife's hair flip thing that she did, okay? And I just told him, I said, every, it was like everything paused except your mom's hair. And it was like in slow motion, right? <laughs> and in my head, to be saved for much, much later, Etta James. Do you know this? At last. Yeah, Okay. I'm going to stop there. My love has come along. My lonely days are over. And life is like a song. At last the skies above are blue. My heart was wrapped in clover the night I looked at you. I found a dream that I could speak to. A dream to call my own. I found a thrill to rest my cheek to. A thrill I've never known. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you smile. You smile. Oh, and then the spell was cast. And now listen. And here we are in heaven. For you are mine. At last. Yeah. You see, you only thought you knew all you needed to know about sex. Well, good for us. There's more where that came from. Okay? So, next heading. Verses 8 to 11, enriching one's pulse for this promised land, covenant captivation. And here's what I mean, what I hope becomes crystal clear, okay? Sex is in no way a meaningless act of mere biological necessity. It's not the unavoidable impulse to, quote-unquote, propagate our genes on the basis of evolutionary materialism. The material is not all there is. Sex is not a spiritually or morally neutral event majoring on bodily mechanics, physical pleasure, and personal score charts. It's not just, oh, we got this covered, where this is just that the bodily mechanics of it all. If that's what you think, I don't mind telling you, you've lost a biblical worldview on this subject. It's much more involved than that. Well, I'm not sure I like involved. Well, I don't like to drink water. But it's good for me. And I think it gives me life. As taking the time to understand anything from God's perspective does. God made us. And He invented sex. It's His idea. And so I say all that to get at this reminder. This husband's golden ball of pure fire desire for her body has roots in her person, in her soul, in her love. 
in this section, the physical is indivisibly intertwined with the spiritual. As if to say, you cannot engage simply in this without engaging in that. One and then the other. It's like having surveyed the temple of her body, he takes a step back now to acknowledge her true and lasting beauty. He invites her to leave a a heavily fortified place, verse 8, for the safest place, verse 9. You know what that safest place is? His heart for her. There, she can let her hair down, so to speak. She can peaceably recline on his chest and feel, as it were, the beating of his heart for her. And yes, ladies, if you were wondering, men do have hearts. We do. Or at least, brothers, we should have hearts like this one. See, he clarifies. It's not just her body that's captivated his heart. It's her You, verse 9, have captivated my heart. It's her. It's how she has loved him. How beautiful, verse 10, is your love. Let the poem count the ways. How she has honored him. How she has extolled his love. How she has affirmed his biblical masculinity. How she has sought him out when she could not find him. And how she has made herself his own. His own. Her love is beautiful. She is beautiful. And further to that point, see how he calls her not just his bride, but what? His sister, his bride. That's the repetition here. You've captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. My sister, my bride. It's his way of saying that she's his spiritual sibling. She's a believer, we might say, in our day. They share a faith in Messiah. They share a Father in heaven. They share a Holy Spirit. They share a new birth. They share a bond that will last forever. Remember a week ago, we said that that marital bond does not last forever. It's momentary. But there actually is a bond that they do share, and that's as siblings in Christ. They are co-heirs of the grace of life, as Peter puts it in his first letter. And that only intensifies his captivation. She's not a temple forsaken. She is a temple filled. Okay? She's holy. And in the words of J.C. Ryle, quote, the more holy married people are, the happier they will be. In this context then, it will sweeten sex where spouses are caring for one another's sanctification. More Jesus makes everything better. Everything. If you want a truly powerful marriage, if you want a truly powerful marriage bed, see that you each love Jesus most. Husband. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Why? That He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Brothers, you got to know the Word. So that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, Ladies, you want to be presented in splendor? Get yourself a guy who loves Jesus and loves the Word of God. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Brothers, see your bride on earth for what she is by grace with God. 
And your holy heart for her will only grow the stronger. Your pulse for her will only be enriched. Get, understand, as this man, charm is deceptive. And beauty, no matter how beautiful, is fleeting. But a woman, a wife, who fears the Lord, she's intoxicating. Her love is better than wine. She is majestically magnetic. See more than her physique. See her faith. Note not just her garden, but her graces. And ladies, do note how she who catches his eye like this, in our chapter, first captivated his heart like that. If you want a godly man who will love you body and soul, work it in reverse. Display your soul. Then, as a wife, your body. And about that, to be sure, as I said, her body is still very much in view here. He moves from her person to her eyes, her soul to her smell, her love to those lips, her charisma to her kisses, right? It's all intertwined. He moves back and forth from one to the other rather freely. So, as we now move along, just hear this, hear this, that sex in God's world, the only world there is, is far more complex and exceedingly glorious than sin would have you believe. Okay. As a bridge then to the end. Look at verse 11. Her lips, he says, drip nectar. Her lips call to his. Like a, a feeder to a hummingbird or something like that. Okay. And there he finds not only, pay attention now, not only dripping nectar, but under her tongue, milk and honey. Remind you of anything? Milk and honey. Here's a kiss. Sounds like of a certain international variety that puts him on the precipice of the promised land. To taste her mouth is like having crossed the Jordan into the divine enjoyment of promise fulfilled. That's what he's getting at there. And it brings us to verse 12 through the end of our text, chapter 5, verse 1, entering and enjoying this promised land, covenant consummation. But now you see in verse 12 how he calls her a garden what? What's he say? A garden Lot is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. She's like Eden. Her shoots, verse 13, amount to an orchard of pomegranates. Indeed, of all the choicest fruits, she's rich with spices and oils and aloes, Henna with nard and saffron and calamus and cinnamon. Trees of frankincense, all of them, and myrrh. She's a garden fountain, a well of living water. She's like Christ. <laughs> She's a, a well of living water that rises up to the level of flowing streams. John chapter 4, then 7. Go read it this afternoon. So, as I said, I say again, her body is a promised land. Making love to her is to him like a little taste of heaven. But now here's the thing. Please pay attention. Even now, he will not force his way in. She's a garden locked. As the way into Eden after the fall 
was guarded by cherubim with flaming swords. No one has been allowed access to her body but one. Her body is holy ground. Her body is sacred space for her husband alone. As the only way into God's garden city is by virtue of faith union to Jesus. Listen, the only righteous way into this garden is by virtue of marriage union to her. Guys and gals, do we understand this? Do we understand what our bodies are? What is it called when we enter an area we cannot lawfully enter? It's called trespassing. Brothers, do not touch what does not belong to you. That would include any female who is not your wife. I don't care if she's willing. Instead of trespassing, maybe you should try helping her to understand the God-given dignity of her God-given body. Again, sacred space. Holy of holies. Promised land. Eden. That's what he's saying in this chapter about his wife's body. And sisters, listen. Do not hand over the keys to your holy kingdom until some holy king seals that ring with vows. Be a garden on lockdown. Don't let anybody in until then. Make it so that your husband has a full garden. That the shoots are really orchards. That the fruits are all accounted for. That the water is living and flowing. Henna, yep. Cinnamon, check. Myrrh, it's there. You get the point, right? All that belongs to two people and perhaps a third. You, God, your husband. Period. If that means repentance this morning, Dear ones, do it. Confess it to the Lord. Seek accountability. Believe in your dignity. Embrace the vision in this text. Set up a gate, lock that thing, guard the key, and wait for the blessed glory that follows. These two are married. Her garden, verse 16, is his garden, also verse 16. See that? Her sexuality was locked up for him. But we know from the poem then, she has now gladly, exuberantly given him the key in marriage. And so here again in verse 16, she now invites him in to the feast. Now, your Bibles might not have her speaking until like the second half of verse 16. It's kind of strange because most scholars seem to attribute the whole verse to her. So that's what I'm going to do. Okay, It's she now who calls upon the north and the south winds to stir up the spices of her garden so that at her invitation, her husband is now swept away. He is swept up off his feet in a glorious gust of everything that makes her sexually intoxicating to him. Or, hear this, as one put it, 
It's almost like in inviting his lovemaking, she's inviting him to experience something like, quote, walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Sex that's truly blessed, truly rapturous, truly even, as we've said, to the glory of God. Her invitation is almost a prayer that's answered, as one might expect, without hesitation. <laughs> Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And then he responds, boom, like that, I came to my garden. My sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh. Notice those possessive words there. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Okay, specifics are not given, but do they really need to be? Right? Suggestive, I think, is enough. He's in that heaven. And she is too. Note the last line there. Eat. It doesn't say guy, groom. <laughs> it says eat friends. Both of them. Drink and be drunk with love. The enjoyment of the marriage bed should not be a one-way affair. It should be consummative of the love shared between the two. And to that point, fun fact here. Gets a little nerdy, but okay. There are 234 lines in the Song of Songs. 234. Minus the 12 in chapter 4, verse 16. And chapter 5, verse 1. Take out those 12. There are 222 lines in the song. 111 prior to chapter 4, verse 16. And 111 after chapter 5, verse 1. In poetry, that means something. It means that the consummation of their marriage, their sexual union, as husband and wife, is actually the climax. It is the highest point, the center of gravity, the very heart of the Song of Songs. This poem is about sex to the glory of God. So that, see then again those last words, chapter 5, verse 1 from the, the holy others. It's no longer, whoa there! It's, go there. It's not, don't, don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. It's awake, O north wind. Come, O south. It's no longer, value fasting in this way, lest you fall headlong. It's, eat, Drink, be drunk with love. This is righteous, pure consumption, a taste of glory. As one put it, the message is simply this. You have God's permission to enjoy sex within your marriage. So, some thoughts here on our way to Jesus. Beloved, when it comes to sexual morality, and sex in particular, where are we getting our info? Where are we getting our imperatives? Where are we getting our imagery? Singles, listen, your glory is not in sexual conquest, but in defense. It's not in perversions, it's in preservation. It's not in giving out to the many, but in storing up for the one. Guys and gals, 
See again here, her body is called a garden temple, a sacred space, a kind of city of God, a fruitful land of promise designed by God for the glory of God. And what I want to say then is use your body and treat that body with all of the holy dignity that that kind of imagery is meant to muster. God's blessing of the land is attached not to sin and trespasses, but to cross-bearing acts of obedience. Her virtue combined with His virtue, that does not spoil their fun. It makes their bed rich. That's what it all the richer. Husbands, is this how you think of your wife's body? Or is thinking and echoing the verbiage of our culture's gutter the very best we can do? Are we selfish, crude, forcible, lacking depth of affection and soul? Or do we think and speak of making love to her as a foretaste of heaven? Brothers, do you love her? Do you like her? Do you desire her? Keep it a golden ball of pure fire. Be regularly in the Song of Songs. That's what I'll say. Without missing its major chord. Okay? Our world says sex is nothing. Pure recreation, meaningless, it's nothing, only to turn around very hypocritically and act like it is everything, right? It's a God. That's what the world says. The Word says, you know what, sex is really something, but it's not at all everything. You see, you muck it up with earth. You'll make it a God that becomes a demon unable to deliver on its promises. But you clear it up by God. You put it all in its proper place, its proper season, and it becomes an almost angelic way of pointing to someone and something who is even infinitely greater. In the end, the most God-glorifying sex on earth is just an anticipation of the satisfaction we're all going to enjoy when God makes all things new in Christ. You know that there's neither marriage nor sex in heaven. Why not? Because they're just prefigurements of an ultimate Pleasure. As C.S. Lewis put it, such things are but, quote, the scent of a flower we have not fully found, the echo of a tune we have not fully heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. And once we have, once we see Jesus face to face, trust God we will know a consummation that fulfills and surpasses every earthly pleasure. Listen, life, friends, consists not in marriage, nor in sex, but in knowing Jesus. Do you know Him? Do you know Him who had no beauty that we should desire Him? who yet being altogether beautiful in the eyes of God, who yet being morally flawless, died on the cross, not only to bear our condemning flaws, but to cover us completely in His utterly justifying beauty. Do you know Him? Are you united to Him by faith? That is the only way into the garden.
That is the only way into heaven. Well, Brian, from what you've said, I don't even know if that'll do. I'm so messed up. So was the woman of Samaria. Talk about a garden trampled. But what vile men had used up and forsaken, what they wanted to use for their own ends for a time, but not till death do us part. And though she had her own part in it, Jesus still wanted her and them as his own forever. Friend, he is the Savior of sinners. Oh man. He is the well of living water. There's no one like him. So, however you've messed it up, whether you ever marry or not, have a marriage bed or not, the Song of Songs testifies to a love of loves that's always available to you. If you have not yet, please put your hope in Christ today. Even now. And dear ones, as you have put your hope in Christ, the final call is just this. It's not to see less of Jesus, but more. So many seem to want to just kind of ride out this thing called the Christian life. Don't do it. Don't do it. See more and more of Him until you see Him in all of His glory. As Etta James would say, Let's pray together. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for how you have loved us. And we do pray now that you would, again, take this word, plant it deep within us. Let it bear much fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we ask you.